What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? Had to get into a bunch of stuff, including the 2024 Oscar nominations. They're out. There's some snubs. There's some surprises. Went through all of that. Of course, also had to talk about Fargo Season 5 wrapping up on FX on Hulu. I caught up on Marvel's Echo Season out in full on Disney+. Plus. Also, two movies. ISS, this new sci-fi thriller with Ariana DeBose, Fallen Leaves, the new Finnish trage comedy film from Aki Kurosaki, and also a little guy named Pete Davidson dropped his second Netflix stand-up comedy special, Turbo Fonzarelli. Make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below for the best of 2024 Spotify playlist, my favorite songs of the week, updated weekly. Let me know what's good and let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Pete Davidson's third stand-up comedy special, Turbo Fonzarelli. Pete Davidson, back. New special on Netflix. His first special since Alive from New York came out right before the pandemic, out on Netflix early 2020. So it's been a while for Pete in the traditional special space. Of course, we know Pete Davidson is out here. He's always in the news, usually for tabloid reasons, but Pete Davidson is frankly one of the most famous stand-up comedians alive right i think that's kind of obvious you know and despite all the fact that he's usually more famous for other reasons than his stand-up comedy i think he's never at any time been held up as like this amazing comic you know despite the fact that i think he performs semi-regularly he's done a lot of uh in tandem stuff with his buddy john mulaney that's for sure and if anything i think uh, some of the funniest stuff I've seen from him is when he's made fun of himself uh, at his own expense. You know, I think just this past year, the I'm just Pete riff off I'm just Ken from Barbie on SNL, Pete's return to SNL post leaving the show. I thought that was incredibly clever and witty and really fun. You know, seeing a new special from Pete, I was curious if there would be you know, signs of, uh, you know, growth um, on that traditional front. You know, he's never been one to, I think, stick to, like, a lot of structure or form when it comes to shaping a stand-up special. Uh, This time around, there were some callbacks, you know, but generally speaking, it's kind of more of what the vibe has previously been uh, with Pete, which is both good and bad, I guess you could say. Like, I think generally I find him as a funny guy just because I think his general persona and presence is just kind of amusing and charming to me. Now, that's kind of in contrast to what I think his general special, his uh, special creation, his general uh, you know, joke writing, which ultimately is pretty basic. It's pretty simple. He's not like the cleverest guy. He's not the most intricate weaver of webs to tell you a joke in the special. He kind of does down-the-middle stuff and... You know, in this case, some of that's like, you know, kind of juvenile stuff, a little toilet humor at times. And yeah, he still makes me laugh. Uh, Sometimes like a really hard chuckle from time to time, especially with this special. Um, But, you know, nothing, I think, with Turbo Fonzarelli really stands out beyond what he has uh, previously done. And like I said, that's both good and bad. You know, um, looking ahead, I'm actually kind of excited about uh, this new movie he has coming out called Wizards from A24. Uh, co-starring with Franz Rogowski. Th- that, I think, has some potential. Probably going to premiere at South by Southwest earlier this year. You know, but, like, this past year, he had the comedy special, or comedy series Bupkis premiere on Peacock. I don't think that made too much noise, right? 
Uh, but getting to the special itself, you know, talking about him recently turning 30, um, and it, it's a lot of, like, referential stuff about his life, right? His drug use, um, you know, using ketamine at while being high on ketamine while at Aretha Franklin's funeral, um, which he did attend. That's like a real anecdote, evidently. That that made some news. That was a headline at this special, right? Um, kind of amusing just for its forthrightness. Of course, he was there as a companion to Ariana Grande, who was, you know, really attending the funeral as... Uh, anyway, yeah. Um, that stuff was kind of fun. I guess like the, you know, melatonin joke about melatonin from an Italian. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, him talking about his mom actually is probably some of the best stuff here it's definitely crass you know talking about his mom wanting a facelift his mom having not not having been laid in 20 years i guess that's kind of a fun callback to you know his last special a lot of stuff in that was about uh his dad who passed away you know on 9 11 which of course was also the subject of king of staten island in a certain respect right uh the movie he made a few years ago and i guess kind of following that up talking about how his mom uh is is today kind of funny you know, um, you know, making making a lot of jokes about people hypothetically having sex with his mom, including himself. You know, just to like get the monkey off her back. It's kind of funny if it's even if a tad off putting, I guess. You know, I think the the stuff I didn't like the most in this was uh, when he was talking about how he thought may, maybe he was uh, gay in his youth because he really liked Leonardo DiCaprio. I uh, just didn't think anything was super intricate in any of that. It was just kind of like annoying. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't find it super funny. Like, it just kind of felt like random uh, conception. Like, I, I bet he just made it up for the sake of the special, but it wasn't really that funny. So, like, there's nothing really to let go. It just doesn't really land. Um, I think what lands a bit better, which is probably uh, the crassest of the jokes he make, is uh, everything talks about the Make-A-Wish kid, right? And, um, you know, then he kind of concludes it, which I think is kind of funny, his POV, where he's talking about, like, wanting the kid to make sure the kid does in fact die because he kind of opened up the kid and told him a lot of secrets, you know, and he's obviously someone who uh, gets a lot of media attention. So he wants to make sure those secrets die with this make a wish kid. Right. Uh, But he kind of ends it with like a pedophile joke, but then he says, Hey, I got molested in the past. So I'm allowed to say those things. That was actually like really funny uh, to be honest. Uh, Stuff with the stalker I thought was uh, amusing talking about his Crohn's disease and how people bring it up to him will also have Crohn's kind of grounding all this like in stuff we know about pete and like the persona the cult of personality of pete davidson and the guy with bde and the guy with all the tabloid attention you know obviously he makes a lot of kind of offhand like jokes and references as part of other jokes about all the girls he's with are always hot right and like that's kind of what i want from him just kind of lean into your persona and do that because i'm not expecting like too much more i'm not expecting anything too too clever or intricate and that's not really what you get here you know, um, the master bedroom stuff, kind of basic as well, but broadly amusing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's Pete Davidson, man. Um, I would love him to do more movies. Um, like I said, looking forward to Wizards. Hopefully that comes out this year. Um, and in general, I think he's like shown good promise in movies. Like I thought he was pretty good in King of Staten Island. I thought he was pretty good in Big Time Adolescence. Put him in more stuff. You know, lately, he's done a lot of cameos as himself. He's done a lot of commercials, right? Guy's rich. And the guy obviously has no problems in his dating life, as we know, you know, uh, good for him in all those respects. But I would like him to take some more chances with movies and kind of go for that because he's a star, you know, and it'd be cool if he was a comedy movie star as well. Maybe he could help lift up 
uh, the studio comedy space, which certainly needs some juice. We'll see. But yeah, as far as the special, it's kind of more of the same, you could say. It's just kind of, you know, another Pete Davidson special. It doesn't really change your opinion of him, whether that was a positive or a negative opinion. So I was amused at times. Didn't, didn't hate watching it by any means. Let me know. What did you think of Turbo Fonzarelli? Did you think it was a small, at least, step forward for Pete, but still kind of what you expect from him when it comes to stand-up? Let me know, and for more stand-up reviews, movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia Dave here with a review of Echo, the latest Marvel Studios TV series, out now in full on Disney+. Plus. Dropped in a binge drop. All five episodes were released, and yeah, it's the latest series. You know, I think this is notable for a lot of reasons, coming at an interesting time for Marvel, as we've been talking about at Nauseam. Echo was dubbed the first Marvel Spotlight title from the mcu namely a series or film that you don't really have any need to watch previous mcu properties to understand which is i think in practice a smart idea to introduce because the mcu is so daunting with what is it 33 some odd movies you know what eight tv series like we're we've seen a lot at this point so i guess that idea makes sense now, I don't think it's actually that applicable to Echo, though, and that's kind of odd to me, and we can get into that, but yeah, I mean, this, you know, this series was supposed to come out in November, got delayed, and, you know, we have a lot of, like, credible reporting about the troubled production, or at least troubled development with Echo, and I think in, on one hand, this is probably the pro- last product of a bygone era at the MCU, honestly, where they kind of realized, finally, you actually do need a traditional showrunner and they're the Mar- marvel trying to do a new model of tv development wasn't really working so you know take that for what you will but yeah this was a series that at one point was going to have more episodes but they did a five episode binge drop beginning of january really just to kind of feels like get this out of the way and move the heck on you know and now the marvel calendar is uh empty until the end of July when Deadpool 3 comes out and uh, lots riding on that as we know. But yeah, I think with Echo, you know, it doesn't really serve the Marvel Spotlight brand all too well because this is a supporting character introduced in the Hawkeye 2021 Disney Plus series and it makes a lot of references in its first episode to the events of Hawkeye as well as the backstory to Echo, a.k.a. Maya Lopez, played by Alec Cox, and Echo the series, like Hawkeye, uh, reintroduces or brings back, keeps it going, uh, Kingpin, a.k.a. Wilson Fisk, as portrayed by Vincent D'Onofrio. And yes, you don't need to have previously watched the Netflix Daredevil run, where D'Onofrio originated this take on the character. You don't need to watch that, but... I feel like the Hawkeye stuff is kind of important to this. And also, this is a series that's clearly doing a lot of setup and legwork to set up future stuff. Namely, I'd imagine Daredevil Born Again, the series that is being completely reworked over at Marvel again due to development uh, issues. And, you know, you get Kingpin back. You see uh, Jeremy Renner both in Hawkeye, uh, the series... Uh, like flashback, like reusing of scenes, as well as I think there's that one scene in the premiere that's new. We also get to see Charlie Cox's Daredevil in a pretty good fight scene also show back up. So 
it's not the most self-contained thing. It's certainly less self-contained than, say, Marvel's Moon Knight, which is truly a Marvel Spotlight brand, in my opinion. Nonetheless, um, that's just semantics. You know, I think this is a show that it's just okay. Like, I wasn't offended by it, but I also didn't love it either. Uh, you can kind of tell it was a bit stitched together and, you know, tried to put it together. And, you know, I think it's, uh, like, like I said, I think it's just all right. And I think a big issue with um, with Echo is, you know, the Echo character, which is a new character, and Cox is a new performer as an actor. Ultimately, it just feels like a bit of a side character because it's only been on TV to this point. I don't know if there's a lot of audience hype or investment for this, and I think the true heads that are really into Kingpin are more going to be probably more interested in what's to follow with Daredevil. I don't know. Um, now, I think what's really good about Echo is that the Echo character, as established in the comics, is both a deaf character as well as a Native American indigenous character, and the way that's portrayed on the Echo series is not pandering or checking a box in any way, I think it's actually done uh, to real genuine uh, effect. You know, uh, American Sign Language, ASL, is a huge part of this series, but how it factors into the plot, when it's like convenient for characters to get around bad guys, but also the connection between uh, Echo and her other relationships, I think it's actually like done in a really good way. And of course, this series taking place primarily uh, in Oklahoma on the Choctaw Reservation, really feels, I think, culturally ingrained into that, like, you know, modern-day indigenous experience. And again, I don't feel like it's pandering. I think it actually does it in a pretty uh, effective manner. It also helps that you have kind of a murderer's row of, of like, known indigenous actors with Graham Greene and Tantu Cardinal, two, you know, native legends in terms of actors, playing Echo's grandparents. You also have uh, Chaske Spencer, from Amazon Prime's The English as her uncle. Uh, I quite enjoyed uh, seeing them. You know, I think they're pretty good. You also have a lot of, basically uh, every episode ha- has an opening flashback, which is regarding the a- Echo's ancestors and how they kind of interact with, like, affecting her powers and whatnot. And, you know, I think on one hand, that kind of stuff, like, bogs down the series a little bit because it feels like very origin story, especially in the beginning half. But I think it's a bit more fulfilling you know, towards the end. Ultimately, again, it's a pretty low-stakes series where it's five episodes, about four hours long. You know, doesn't really, I think, surprise you from any plot perspectives. But, you know, I think, um, like, one of those flashbacks, which was, like, the silent black and white, like, Western one, that was really well done. And I think the, you know, family resonance stuff, particularly between uh, Echo and her grandmother, um, I think that that's done the best, you know. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think this series would probably have been served better if it came out, you know, like the immediate aftermath of Hawkeye. But after like the, you know, 18 months Marvel has had, I mean, it's just a lot of apathy, you know, and like this is a series that people might have actually been kind of excited about because, you know, it's the first Marvel series to get a TV MA rating, you know, the equivalent of it R- an R-rated MCU thing. And it's certainly more violent, more grisly in the action than the past MCU, you just see, I think you see more blood, you see more, like, like clear, like, death, you know? And, um, you know, the, th- the opening fight scene you get in the first episode where Daredevil shows up, that's, like, really intense. 
think the train set piece is pretty good. The stuff at the roller rink, I think, is probably the best of anything you get from, like, a visual uh, action set piece, you know? But I think there'd be a lot more excitement for that kind of thing. You know, again, kind of hearkening back to the Netflix Marvel era. If this was coming at a different time, again, we're coming off Secret Invasion. We're coming off the Marvels being the lowest grossing MCU movie in history, with or without inflation. You know, like, it, it's a tough time for audience investment and a character like Echo, you know, a series about Echo or movie that for that matter, probably not getting Greenland at this time. You know, this was Greenland at a different time when things were going, you know, differently. And it was about more, 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 you know, and you look at the, the state of the MCU shows, I think this is better than a few of them, but it's not, it's not like as excellent as the high end stuff either. So yeah, I, I kind of understand why they wanted to get it out the door, but when the expectations are as low as they were coming in, I, I am a bit presently surprised just because of how it handles, I think, some of the cultural stuff that sets it apart and makes it unique. So, yeah, ultimately, I don't think there's a whole lot more to really latch onto about it. You know, um, Daredevil Born Again, we know that that show was, you know, there's there new hirings and it was basically completely being completely redone and reworked after what was previously filmed was not deemed uh, good enough. And, I think more than anything, the MCU probably going to make a lot less shows from what we understand, but they're actually going to make them in a more traditional manner with a full showrunner and a full writer's room and not just trying to create everything in editing and keeping the creative vision directly at the hands of the studio. So positive takeaway overall, but ultimately I think like, we kind of know like this, whether this was amazing or not, like this wasn't going to change the fortunes of Marvel. Uh, Deadpool 3 will have a, I think, important say in that matter, and uh, certainly original stuff to come, such as the Fantastic Four reboot, will have a lot to say as well. But that's Echo. It's just okay. But yeah, let me know. What'd you think of it? Were you super hyped for it? I can't imagine too many people were checking, super, super excited to check it out. But what'd you think? I mean, you know, I think Wilson Fisk, as portrayed by D'Onofrio, is. I actually kind of enjoy the presence of like his hulking yet kind of sensitive portrayal. On the other hand, I feel like he might have been wily pipped by the portrayal of Kingpin in Across the Spider-Verse on the animated front, so I'm not too sure. But yeah, let me know what you think of Echo. For more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Fargo Season 5, out now in full on FX and Hulu. Fargo kind of returned with a more back-to-the-basics style approach with Season 5 after uh, several switch-ups and changes with the previous season. And I think for the most part, this perhaps familiarity, this return to the Fargo vibe, if you will, pretty successful. Like, I think Fargo Season 5, I was hoping it would be at least on par with Fargo Season 3 as, like, the third best Fargo season. Hard to ask for the fifth season of anything to be as good as the really stellar first two seasons you got. We don't, we, we haven't touched that again, but that's okay. I don't think that was a realistic expectation. Fargo season five, I think is pretty successful. Uh, you have good performances, good acting. And even if the, I think plot mechanics might be a bit familiar to that quote, Fargo vibe, Fargo formula. Um, I actually think we had a pretty surprising, like subversive ending, which I wasn't quite expecting given that most of the, rest of season five wasn't quite on that level so overall i have a pretty favorable view of the season you know i think right off the bat just kind of like your central characters your central pieces of casting 
Uh, Juno Temple is really good as Dot. I think she's a really solid like lead protagonist, and uh, Temple's able to really imbue. I think the uh, like f- the fierce like uh, desire to be a survivor that Dot slash Nadine had right and Fargo season five tackles I think some really meaty stuff and and Temple and the Dot character are right in the middle of that namely this show is really talking about toxic masculinity and where that intersects with domestic abuse like very uh, forthright in how it's handling that of course I think there's a lot of grounding also in uh, MAGA politics just I think politics and like cultural sentiment just generally of like the current time and of course, that's largely through the villain of the season, uh, Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm. And I think Hamm, unsurprisingly, does a really good job playing this kind of insurrectionist, independent thinker, but also biblical-rooted uh, sheriff character who obviously has really regressive views on gender relations and race and uh, the separation of church and state, all kinds of things, right? So uh, Ham, I think, did a really good job with that. I think this dynamic, basically, of Da escaping from him before the show begins, and uh, due to his own perversions, uh, Tillman's obsession with getting his past wife back, even though he's already married with kids to somebody else, in this case, the uh, daughter of the uh, local militia that he's kind of shacked up with, right? I think all that worked really good. And then, of course, the other side of this coin is uh, Dot's new family, which is, uh, you know, that she she married into the uh, the Lions, where you have uh, Wayne, her husband, who, uh, you know, played by David uh, Reisdahl. I thought Wayne actually like, really grew throughout this season. Like, at, towards the end, once, you know, like Wayne gets electrocuted briefly, uh, loses his memory, and then uh, starts to recollect himself. Everything with Wayne, like I think, just like his cheerfulness, his his, his genuine niceness, like the Minnesota nice, quote unquote, that we get explained to us in the first episode. Like, it's like honestly, like really charming, and uh, I think his also like obliviousness to a lot of stuff that's going on throughout this season is also just quite nice, quite fun. So I like that, and of course, his mother, played uh, Lorraine, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, the uh, evil queen debt collector, multimillionaire person, right? Also, a, a pretty fun character where she's a lot more like villainous and cold in the beginning, but actually kind of comes around and welcomes Dot into the family by the time the finale turns. Um, really cool. I liked it. You know, um, I think, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, her, her uh, Lorraine's uh, fixer, uh, Danish, played by uh, Dave Foley with the eye patch. Uh, nice presence. You know, I mean, I think that that's that's kind of like a, archetype we've seen in Fargo before probably more effective in past seasons but it was actually kind of tough when you know he gets axed off uh, gets whacked and like the penultimate or second to last episode through the last episode you know I thought it was I, I liked his presence you know if anything I think the characters that um don't quite work and this was definitely a huge problem with Fargo season four where you just had a really uh, ballooned ensemble and just, you weren't able to pay off a lot of characters and a lot of stuff didn't feel fulfilling I think in this case uh, that's clearly the case with uh, uh, Trooper uh, Whit Farr, played by L- Lamorne Morris, who, of course, you know, helps rescue Dot and save Dot 
from following the kidnapping in, in the premiere. And then all the way at the end, of course, he gets stabbed and killed by Tillman when he's trying to escape the FBI. And like, I think just uh, Trooper Farr, like, that's just, he was just kind of like a plot device. He didn't really have a lot of development as a character. There just wasn't a lot to him. He didn't have a whole lot to really do that wasn't in direct service of the plot elements revolving uh, what Dot was up to episode to episode. So his his death, you know, the one like good guy death in, in the finale, um, and of course Danish had already died, like um, his death doesn't really land as, as well as I think it should have, you know, if that was a character you had more connection to, that character that had more development. Also, you know, I quite enjoyed um, Indira, the uh, deputy who quickly starts investigating everything that's kind of going on, the strangeness of um, Dot's situation as she tries to pretend nothing's wrong with uh, her life. Uh, Richa Morjani plays Indira. Also, Indira doesn't get a whole lot of payoff either. Like, I guess we're happy that she kind of gets to level up in life and work directly for Lorraine and make some more money, given that she had severe uh, personal debt issues, right? And I guess it's like kind of like a full circle thing that she gets to make a big dent on getting ahead in life while working for the uh, overseer of debt collection, right? A bit ironic. But like, I don't know, like her husband, her deadbeat husband, played by Lucas Gage, you know, in a recurring role earlier in the season, um, you know, he cheats on her, she kicks him out, and then she moves on and gets a new job, right? And it's like, also not a whole lot there to that, right? Like, I, I, I don't know, I just, I just also felt like it was not the most fulfilling character arc, even if I enjoyed the presence, enjoyed the performance. Um, Joe Keery as Gator, uh, 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 Roy's kind of dipshit son, adult son. Really awesome casting. I was so it was so nice to have Joe Keery playing like a a dickhead again. You know, since Stranger Things season one, uh, he's largely had that character on Stranger Things be turned into more of a good guy. Right? It's fun to see him being a a villain again. But this was a villain who was so incompetent that he kind of bordered on like uh, being comic relief for lots of the season. You know, I really loved earlier earlier in the season where uh, Dot has to basically do her inner Kevin McAllister and uh, Home Alone defend her house from would-be kidnappers, right? And just watching uh, Gator and his goons get exposed at every turn, whether it's by Dot or whether it's by Munch, whatever's going on, um, I like that, you know? And his arc, you know, where Munch uh, takes his eyes as retribution, um, you know, his uh, Roy throwing him aside completely, not feeling the use in him and, and his incompetence. Like, also, I don't know if there's a whole lot of payoff there. Like, he's just kind of going to jail, seemingly has repented a little bit. Whatever. I, I did enjoy the character um, and the performance. Um, yeah, I mean, like, that, that's kind of like the, the core crew, right? Um, who am I forgetting? Oh, of course, Munch and Munch himself, right? Uh, Sam Spruill really doing, I think, a certainly unique for the season performance where I think Munch as the heavy kind of introduced in a more familiar situation, right? As this kind of like unhinged, hard to contain, uh, you know, weapon of evil, uh, chaos agent type character, but the introduction or revelation, you know, in typical Fargo fashion of, in, of introducing some kind of spirituality, some kind of, um, you know, not, not grounded aspect. There's always a little bit of that in a Fargo season, finding out that old Munch is in fact, this 500 plus year old, 
uh, Sin Eater, originally from, you know, Wales, you know, centuries ago. Uh, that was quite the revelation. You know, when we, that, that flashback stuff I thought was really cool, really good. And then this all leads up to what made the finale so surprising, which was that Munch is able to seemingly let put aside his um, previous code and his desire to fulfill debts where Dot is able to basically charm him into opening up and getting something he's never able to uh, get, which was, I guess, like sitting down and having a family meal versus in the past when he was just invited to, you know, eat the sin that wasn't even his and then get, like, take the blame off the shoulders of the community, things of that nature. It's a really delicate, like, final scene because, like, you assume it's just going to go poorly and be like the last bit of bloodshed in the finale given the fact that the shootout at the Tillman Ranch ends in the beginning of the episode but no like it was quite the subversion quite the flip and uh, I thought it was pretty enjoyable and definitely unique you know not what I expected again given that most of Fargo season five was a bit more conventional Uh, but yeah I think overall successful season from Noah Hawley you know I don't know if we're going to get a Fargo season six we're certainly not going to get it anytime soon because Hawley is already well underway with his Alien series for FX, which has been cast. I believe it's already in production or about to go into production. So um, then, of course, Alien Romulus, the film, separate from that's coming out later this year. So who knows? Maybe he'll go right into a second season of the Alien series. Obviously, it's IP they'd like to build up over at uh, FX and you know, under the Disney umbrella. So we'll see. Um, but I think Fargo Season 5, which, again, initially was supposed to come after Alien, and then they've actually moved this up um, in terms of the order of releasing of things. I think it proved that there's still plenty of juice, plenty of life in the Fargo series, and uh, you know, kind of like what True Detective season four is showing us uh, right now, where having like a quote like anthology TV brand, and then doing something basically completely new every time, even if maybe there's some tonal or setting uh, familiarities, similarities season to season. I think it's a, like a really nice way to kind of thread the needle of needing to use IP to attract audience during uh, the times we live in, you know, as the peak TV era is crested, but also giving you so much room, r- room to do something new. Um, and in the case of Fargo, that's still largely Noel Hawley being the creative force behind it. But yeah, I, I imagine Fargo season six, you know, three years from now, four years from now, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But let me know, what did you think about Fargo Season 5? Did you find it overall pretty satisfying like me? How would you compare it to past Fargo Seasons? Let me know what you thought of the whole thing or anything individual about it. And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of ISS, the new science fiction thriller film from Gabriella Culperwaith, starring Ariane DeBose, also some other familiar faces like John Gallagher Jr., Chris Messina, Pilo Ashbake. And yeah, I think this was a movie that I didn't really know about until I started seeing some of the marketing, you know, obviously kind of getting dumped here in January, but I actually think it's a pretty fun movie, a tight 90 minute space thriller film. I think it's pretty well made, well acted, well conceived, good set design. Uh, kind of surprised me because again, I didn't really have any expectations for this. I uh, certainly didn't really know, wasn't really checking for it per se, you know, uh, the director, she's probably best known as the director of uh, Blackfish, the Orca Whale documentary from a while back at this point. But, you know, Ariane DeBose, star turn, uh, her first probably first big movie role 
post-winning, you know, supporting actress Oscar for West Side Story, her breakthrough movie role. So I obviously wanted to check it out as a sci-fi fan. And I think, honestly, just the central, like, high-concept premise of this movie, which is what if astronauts on the International Space Station, three Americans and three Russians, what if they find themselves at odds because down below on Earth, a world war erupts between Russia and America? That's a dynamite presence, honestly. You know, the ISS, the International Space Station, it's been a setting in movies in the past. You know, I think of recently you had uh, that kind of maligned sci-fi movie, Life, from about, what, four or five years ago. Jake Gyllenhaal was in that. Um, so, it's you know, it's been up there before. But, yeah, I think that's like a really good, uh, really good premise just because it immediately sets like high stakes uh, thrills on all our characters here and like the tension is quite palpable it's easy to understand uh, it's stressful unsurprisingly both sides of the uh, station up there get the same orders from down below to take control of the station by any means necessary and you know i think if there's a fault with this movie it's probably just that there's some of the beats the narrative beats the uh Perhaps you say tropes with this type of story. It's a bit familiar or at least a bit easy to foresee how things are going to go. You know, Ariane DeBose's character, who's a new astronaut just arriving on the station, she's kind of portrayed as like the obvious heroine of the story. It's kind of clear from the jump. Um, despite all that, though, I thought like a lot of like the beats, even though I could see what was going on, you know, and like I guess spoilers for some of the set pieces, but like. You know, watching Messina go out and do the spacewalk and like knowing that he's about to be sabotaged uh, and and attempted to be murdered by the cosmonauts, like, you know it's coming, right? But still seeing it portrayed, especially I think, because again, I think the movie looks really well, well, well done and it's like so tight, you know, economical in its screenplay, 90 minutes, um, you still enjoy it. Honestly, a really good comp would be For All Mankind, the Apple TV Plus series that just concluded its fourth season which i've re- i just reviewed um it c- kind of gives you for all mankind vibes where like it's just really fun storytelling you know and this um tension perhaps a little bit reminiscent of the for all mankind season two finale in terms of russian and u.s tensions uh and high stakes and violence ensuing out in space of course that was set on the moon not the iss nonetheless i think it's done pretty good um the claustrophobia of the station the um, also exoticness of the station and like what it looks like and where astronauts can run and hide to and things like that. Um, that's cool for the audience. And it's kind of reminiscent of like spending time on like a submarine, you know, not that different from like the Crimson Tide stuff going on in the second half of that movie, right? Um, the, the, the set design does a really good job. And also like the portrayal of... Um, you know, weightlessness, you know, and no gravity, obviously, looks pretty good. I imagine they use a lot of wires for this, but, like, it's pretty effective. And, honestly, like, the CGI uh, portrayal of a Earth from above, looking down on Earth from space as bomb, nuclear war is beginning and seeing it on fire, like, it's pretty polarizing and, or, sorry, pretty pretty um, profoundly moving imagery, you know, even if it's obviously fake. So, yeah, I mean, it was nice to see John Gallagher Jr., as well, I feel like he hasn't been doing too much on the movie front. I know he's a big theater actor these days, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie uh, for what it was. Again, like I, I just appreciate that's like a tight genre thriller 
you know, and like as far as like the dumpuary standard goes, you know, of movies that are just kind of thrown out in January. And of course, these are not like, you know, platform award release movies that also come out this time. These are just you know kind of wide release studio movies that are just put out at this time because there's not really big expectations for critical or commercial performance or reception. And, you know, getting this and actually being pretty solid, that's that's a win for us in January with the movies. You know, honestly, just like Jason Statham's The Beekeeper, which just uh, came out last week, also kind of being like a surprisingly like solid movie as well. And even the Mean Girls remake, like pretty good January, all things considered. And, you know, we're looking at a quiet first half of the year due to the strike delays on the movie front. So I think this is a positive development. Unfortunately, ISS is not looking like it's going to do too much on the box office front. I think it's just really an awareness issue, and it wasn't really marketed as a result. So unsurprising. But I think this movie has the potential to be a streaming discovery, at least in in some form for people down the road, because I actually think it's pretty good. But let me know, what did you think of ISS if you've seen it? And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Fallen Leaves, the latest film from Aki Kurismaki, the fin- Finnish film legend, probably the most well-known uh, film director out of Finland. This film was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Film Not in an English Language and made the shortlist for Best International Feature Film at the Oscars, but kind of surprisingly was not nominated for the Oscar. Nonetheless, Fawn Leaves has got a lot of plaudits ever since it premiered back at Cannes last year, won the jury prize there, had a small limited release uh, at the end of 23, and is now available in the U.S. on MUBI, the service, small streaming service that you can access via Amazon. You can uh, get a trial there, see the movie very easily. And yeah, this film, you know, I, I in full, full disclosure, I've never seen a Kurzmaki film before. Of course, he has a lot of uh, plaudits, a pretty lengthy filmography. But I was pretty uh, excited about this, given other people were pretty into this film. And it's a pretty tight 81-minute, uh, you know, tragedy, dramedy type story. And I thought it was pretty interesting. You know, this stars Alma Poitsi as Ansa and Yusi uh, Vatonin as Holapa. And it's really just a two-hander film. You know, we're set in Helsinki and we're spending time with our two characters. You know, they're, you know, later in life, you know, like in their 40s-ish. And they are living uh, pretty lonely, solitary lives, uh, working pretty dead-end uh jobs just kind of getting by you know living on the margins uh on set has a zero hour contract stocking shelves at a grocery store uh very uh you know not good <laughs> and then uh halopa is a uh, like a like a laborer on construction sites basically and actually is living at like a uh job provided dormitory alongside other workers and you know, they you can kind of see like how they go about their mo- their business. Where like Ansa sometimes like turns on the radio and is listening to like uh, developments about the early days of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, and uh, she just turns off the radio eventually. Just like sits there in silence, does not have a lot going on with her life uh, socially, personally. Does not seem very motivated, or at least not um enthusiastic about things. And Halapa kind of seriously, again, like even more so than Ansa, who at least has her own apartment. Halapa is very much just kind of getting by, scraping by. And they end up connecting at this uh, karaoke uh, bar, which is a pretty awesome scene, I have to say, where Halapa's friend, this older guy, tries to hit on uh, Ansa's friend. 
uh, goes up there and sings. It's a pretty good karaoke scene. I liked it a lot. And they end up connecting uh, Ansa and Halopa, and they uh, decide to eventually uh, like meet up and go on a date, and they go to the movies, and they see uh, Jim Jarmusch's film The Dead Don't Die from, what was that, 2017 or so? And you actually see like a brief few scenes of that movie, uh, which is kind of funny. And then uh, Ansa gives Halapa her phone number written on a piece of paper. Doesn't has never told him her name though. It's been a very like, uh, like cool, like steely, like connection, right? As they don't say a whole lot to each other, but clearly are enjoying the company. And Halapa like immediately loses the number. It's the paper just like falls out of his pocket. And he doesn't doesn't know her name, has no way of uh, looking her up, you know. And they eventually find a way to reconnect by just meeting up at the old, waiting at the old movie theater they they met at and hoping they can run into the other. (coughs) But they eventually disconnect after a second date when Ansa uh, sees Halupa drinking from a flask at her apartment when she invites him over for dinner and it's kind of like the coming to a head of like what's been going on with Halapa who you you see him often like drinking like taking sips out of a flask or a small uh, like fifth of uh, liquor you know he has in his, his coat pocket and he gets fired from multiple jobs he gets fired from the first job for filling a breathalyzer test and being caught drinking on the job at the other one and gets kicked out of his worker provided uh, work provided dormitory and is sleeping on benches as you can tell things are not going well and yet they're eventually able to uh, connect you know, towards the end. And I think it's a pretty interesting movie for what it says about loneliness and uh, lost connection or just a desire for some kind of connection and kinship. Because, again, these are people that barely have their shit together, uh, but not necessarily are bad people you know, by any means, but just have um, find themselves in some tougher circumstances. And you know, I think the movie, maybe I could say it starts a hair slow, like, you kind of pick up where it's going, and it doesn't quite progress quickly enough, but it's also filmed in an interesting way where it feels, like, very, like, gray and, like, blue in the, the sadness sense, and when I was watching, I was like, wow, this does not paint Helsinki in a uh, nice light, even though Helsinki and Finland are, are both wealthy places, wealthy nation, prosperous place, you know, and yet that's not what you're seeing here, and uh, people that have seen other Karasmaki films have describe this as kind of like a spiritual continuation of his proletariat trilogy in terms of the thematic interests that Kurosamaki has with his films and it's uh I think this is, it does a pretty uh good job of portray- portraying people living kind of on the edges but that's not really what the movie is about right so pretty cool shout out Fallen Leaves available now on movie if you're in the U.S. and yeah uh, I'd say unfortunate that it wasn't nominated for the Oscar it would have been cool to see Finland recognized there after it's been some time Nonetheless, I think people will seek this out. There's a bit of anticipation and hype around it as far as, you know, foreign films being released in the U.S. goes. So let me know how'd you feel about Fallen Leaves, what'd you think of it, and for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia. Dave, here are my 2024 Oscar nominations reaction. Gonna go through all the Oscar nominees, gonna go through the snubs, the surprises, and yes, we had some surprises. A lot to get into here. Of course, if you missed it, I did my predictions for the Oscar nominations last week. I did pretty good, but there was definitely some stuff I did not foresee. And of course, I'll be doing my predictions for who I think will win in a little bit. Uh, Obviously, the Oscars are not until March 10th, so the predictions will be a little bit uh, later than now. Nonetheless, a lot to get into with these nominations. 
starting off the bat, I think let's start with Best Picture because Best Picture actually was probably the chalkiest, most straightforward category of all. It directly matches the Producers Guild Award nominations as well. And I think this, this, this happened just because there was really no other films rising up to take a spot here. So your 10 Best Picture nominees are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. What movie could have really got in there at this point, the way award season, the way things have been going? I mean, May-December, All of Us Strangers, The Color Purple, those are the only movies that really come to mind. And, you know, it never really happened for All of Us Strangers at all. Uh, The Color Purple also clearly was a soft awards film, and same thing for May-December. So it kind of by default became this group of 10. And I really have no beef with this. I mean, my, you know four of my top five movies of the year are in this list. Like, I feel great about this. So, Best Picture, really no qualms about it. Obviously, we know it's Oppenheimer's race to lose right now. But uh, Oppenheimer also leading the field here, the most nominated film of the day, unsurprising, with 13, followed by Poor Things with 11, Killers with 10, Barbie with 8, Maestro with 7, American Fiction, Anatomy of Fall, The Holdovers, and Zone of Interest with 5, Shout out really Scott's Napoleon, three Oscar noms. And then uh, the last movies with multiple noms, with two noms each. You have The Creator, Mission Impossible 7, Niad, Past Lives, and Society of the Snow. A nice grouping there. So let's get into some of the surprises here. So from Best Picture, let's move to Best Director. Okay, so Best Director, we felt very confident that Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, and Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon would all be nominated. And they were. Here's where the surprises begin. Also nominated for Best Director, we have Justine Triet for Anatomy of Fall and Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. We've often talked about the international uh, nature, composition of the Film Academy and how that has changed and is newer uh, more recently than it was in the past. And we're often seeing this bubble up in the Best Director category where people like Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round and Paweł Palakowski for Cold War, and Ruke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car get nominated for Best Director as International Directors. And I was curious how this would go this year, because Yoros Lanthimos, of course, famously a Greek man. I was wondering if the that would coalesce and he would be our representative of you know world cinema. And you'll notice Greta Gerwig is the big shock here, not nominated for Barbie, because both Glazer and Triet get, got in. I predicted that I thought Triette would get in as that number five. You know, Alexander Payne alongside Gerwig was nominated for the Holdovers and Best Director at the DGA, the Director's Guild Award. And I was feeling Payne would drop out and Glazer took that spot with the zone of interest. But I was not expecting Justine Triette to also jump in and take away from Greta, or at least to have that happen uh, in tandem like that. So that is definitely a big surprise and a a, a bit of a hit there for uh, Greta. Nonetheless, it's not all bad news for Greta Gerwig, who becomes the first person, first director, male or female, to have their first three solo directorial films all nominated for Best Picture. That's Lady Bird, Little Women, and now Barbie. Huge accomplishment. Also this year, with Best Picture, you know, on the female front, it's the first time ever we've had three films nominated for Best Picture that are helmed by women. Of course, that's Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, and Past Lives. So, you know, tough uh, individual accolade there for Greta, but overall, I think things look pretty good there. Uh, yeah, and again, just a big shock, 
you know, I have really no beef with any of those selections. Again, I was picking Justine Triette. I'm just kind of shocked that Greta didn't get in, given how much respect and esteem she has as a one of our newest, you know, directorial auteurs. Nonetheless, it happened. Uh, looking at Best Actor here, you know, again, we knew that a few of these were definitely going to happen. Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, and Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Felt really good about those. Also felt very good about Bradley Cooper and Maestro. Those four did, in fact, get nominated for Best Actor. The last spot went to Coleman Domingo for Rustin for his portrayal as Bayard Rustin in the Netflix biopic film. And there was definitely some, you know, buzz that that could happen, you know, as Leonardo DiCaprio notably got uh, uh, snubbed, quote unquote, by the SAG Award nominations. And of course, it never really happened for Andrew Scott or All of Us Strangers. So in, in fact, that is what happened, where Leo did not get nominated and Coleman Domingo did instead. And, you know, it's a good field. I just wish Rustin was like a better movie. It's a pretty staid, uh, bland, doesn't look too great film. But Domingo's really good, and I think it's a kind of a sick nom, honestly, just because um, he's someone who's been good for a while. He's also very good in The Color Purple this year. He's really good on Euphoria, people might remember. Like He's been great forever, and it's a really nice recognition for him. So I don't have too much of a problem with it, given Leo's been nominated many times. He's already won. Um, and The Killer's Campaign clearly was not really running Leo as who they wanted to win. Of course, they were more coalescing behind Lily Gladstone, who got nominated for Best Actress, unsurprisingly, alongside Carrie Mulligan and Maestro, Emma Stone and Poor Things, and Sandra Huller and Anatomy of Fall. So those four, everyone felt pretty good about. We also felt pretty good about Margot Robbie and Barbie being nominated for Best Actress, but she was not nominated. I'm pretty surprised about this. And in her place, you have Annette Bening, for Nyad, as Diana Nyad, another Netflix biopic film performance. Netflix really pulling through here. And this is a bit of a shock, I have to say. You know, Margot still gets a nomination as one of the producers of Barbie in the Best Picture category. Um, you know, she's someone who's been nominated before, of course. But it's a tough beat, you know, tough, tough, you know, comedies often struggle at the Oscars, unfortunately. That's tough just because, again, Annette Benning is Nyad. Like, you know, it's not what I wanted to see, quote unquote. And, you know, I, I was really pulling for Greta Lee in past lives. I didn't think it was going to happen. It didn't, um, unfortunately. But I think Margot Robbie not being nominated in Best Actress really stands out when you can contrast this with what happened with Best Supporting Actress, where America Ferreira did get nominated for her role in Barbie. To pick America Ferreira but not Margot. Uh, that's very perplexing to me, to be honest. Um, not what I would have done. So Best Supporting Actress, you have Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers, Jodie Foster for Nyad, Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer, and Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple. Felt pretty good about those four. America Ferrera as Barbie is kind of the big surprise where like she was in the mix, but you know, I had predicted perhaps Penelope Cruz could get in for Ferrari after her SAG nom. And obviously Julianne Moore was still in the mix for May, December as well. Nonetheless, Ferrera does get in, but it's the Ferreira over Robbie choice, even though that's not exactly what the choice is, but that's what it feels like. That's what really stands out to me about this. So again, a bit of a shock here. And then looking at Best Supporting Actor, again, you had people that you knew would be there, right? Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer, Robert De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon, Ryan Gosling for Barbie. Felt good about those. Uh, Mark Ruffalo does get in for Poor Things. I wasn't too confident about that one. And then Sterling K. Brown got in for American Fiction, which I had predicted I was happy about, but you know, was not a lock. And as a result, this means that Willem Dafoe did not get in for poor things. Ruffalo got it instead. I think that was the right choice. It's a better, more 
newer, unique performance from Ruffalo, whereas this was Defoe doing things you've seen him do before. I'm, albeit very good, like I love Defoe and poor things, but Ruffalo's a better nom, I think. Uh, and I act, I'm happy about that. I didn't actually see that one coming, so that's good. And then Sterling K. Brown getting in for American Fiction is amazing. Unfortunately, what this means is Charles Melton did not get in for May-December. Uh, again, May-December did not have the Oscar nom day people would have thought, right? No Alexander Payne, no Best Picture nomination, no Julianne Moore, but no Charles Melton is a big hit. Because, you know, you remember a few months ago, people were saying, is Charles Melton the dark horse in this? Could he knock off RDJ? No, he doesn't even get nominated. Big hit. Also a big hit for the like Hollywood minting new movie stars thing because Melton obviously seeing him on the awards circuit on the red carpet like that guy has the look and has the talent and that is a tough beat for him unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so that's acting. I'll just kind of go through some other categories here. Go through all of them. Animated feature: The Boy and the Heron from Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. Unsurprisingly, there alongside Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Felt very safe about those. Elemental from Pixar does get through. Nimona from Netflix does get through. The surprise, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, is Robot Dreams getting in. This is a film, I haven't seen this film yet, but uh, this is a Spanish-French animated film, and it's kind of reminiscent of reminiscent of when I Lost My Body got nominated, I think, three or four years ago. Um, you know, more like auteurist, uh, non-mainstream animated fair getting in. Think of Flea as well, that neon release. They're releasing Robot Dreams. You know, and like, what else could have taken that spot? You know, Mario, not critically liked, despite the big box office. Wish, same thing on Disney front. Then, I guess, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the only other one that I think people were predicting. I didn't have a good feel for that thing. I went with TM TMNT in my predictions, but cool. You know, I'm definitely going to seek out Robot Dreams. Best International Feature Film, also a bit of a surprise here. Uh, unsurprisingly, is two nominations. The Zone of Interest from Jonathan Glazer in the United Kingdom. Obviously, it's going to be here. It was nominated for Best Picture. No shock, it's going to win. And then Society of the Snow from Spain and uh, director Jay Bayona out on Netflix. Netflix getting that one through, unsurprisingly. And also Society of the Snow getting a second nomination for uh, makeup and hairstyling, which I think is quite justly earned. Uh, the surprise here, though, is the other nominations. You have The Teacher's Lounge from Germany, Perfect Days from Japan, and Io Capitano from Italy. What that means is Fallen Leaves from Finland and uh, Kurzmaki did not get through. That's a bit of a shock. And also the Taste of Things from France did not get through. What a bad beat for France. They picked the Taste of Things over Anatomy of a Fall, and Taste of Things doesn't even get nominated, whereas Anatomy of the Fall is nominated in what, five categories, including Best Picture, would have ran away with this dub if uh, it had been there, but no, now France gets no glory uh, in this category. Tough beat there. Ayo Capitano gets through after getting Globe nominated for uh, film not in an English language. Perfect Days from Vin Vendors in Japan, which I did pick, is there. But yeah, I think uh, no Fallen Leaves and no The Taste of Things. That's a surprise in international feature. Uh, let's see. Best Original Screenplay, we have Anatomy of a Fall. The Holdovers, Maestro, May, December, Past Lives. That's actually like very chalk. There really was nothing else, uh, I think, that could have been picked there once the Barbie designation happened, where Barbie was determined to be an adapted screenplay, not original. Like your other choices for original screenplay this year are like films like Asteroid City or Saltburn or Air, which those movies just never really had much of an awards push or awards momentum. So no, no surprise with original screenplay. And then adapted screenplay, you have American Fiction. Shout out Cord Jefferson getting nominated there. Uh, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Zone of Interest. I mean, what you could have picked here, uh, 
is one key omission. Killers of the Flower Moon. C- Killers of the Flower Moon not nominated for adapted screenplay. That is a bit of a shock. Uh, nonetheless, Killers got a lot of nominations. Uh, you know, that's tough though, man. Big, big category. I think. I don't know what you take away. I guess you take away Zone of Interest because that's more of a directorial, visual, sonic effort than much of a screenplay. That's probably the what I would have done there. But uh, nonetheless, that's a shock, I guess you could say. Um, documentary feature film. I just want to note that 20 Days in Mariupol is nominated there, the documentary about the Ukraine war. I had picked 20 Days in Mariupol to get into international feature film as well as doc. It didn't, but I guess you know spreading the wealth a little bit it's in the doc category makes some sense there. Also in that category, To Kill a Tiger, The Eternal Memory, Four Daughters, and Bobby Wine. I'm going to ignore the shorts. You know, just not a shorts guy. Uh, cinematography, we have Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Poor Things. All, all pretty chalk. But then El Conde, uh, Ed Lockman's cinematography for El Conde and Netflix, the Pablo Lorraine movie. That's a shock. That's a pretty cool nomination. Uh, editing, we have Anatomy of Fall, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things. And that's probably your top five best picture like ranking right there. That's how we usually think about editing, right? Costume design, we have Barbie, Killers, Napoleon, nice nom, Oppenheimer, Poor Things. Production design, Barbie, Killers, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, same exact thing with costume. Makeup and hairstyling, we have Golda, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, and Society of the Snow. I'm pretty hyped about uh, Best Sound, The Creator. Maestro, Mission Impossible 7, Oppenheimer, and The Zone of Interest. Loaded category, uh, all very deserving. And then visual effects, you have The Creator, Godzilla Minus One, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Mission Impossible 7, and Napoleon. Really like that The Creator got two noms here, then Godzilla Minus One got into visual effects. I think either one of those is an excellent choice for visual effects, and they're both shining examples of like what can be achieved in filmmaking with smaller budgets not 200 plus million dollar hollywood budgets like that's uh really i think great recognition i hope that's a sign of things to come uh original score you have american fiction indiana jones and the dial of destiny john williams extending his record with his 54th nomination at the oscars killers of the flower moon or robbie robertson posthumous nomination oppenheimer lubin gordonson and poor things so pretty good category there and best original song you have Gosh, The Fire Inside from Flaming Hot, another Diane Warren original song nomination. This keeps happening. It's probably one of the most ridiculous like Oscar traits is Diane Warren getting nominated for Best Original Song in songs people don't know, often in movies people haven't seen. Flaming Hot's a little bit more popular than some of her past films she's been nominated for, but it's kind of ridiculous. I'm Just Ken from Barbie. That's there. That's probably the winner. It Never Went Away from American Symphony, John Batiste's song. Uh, Wakshawazi, Song for My People from Killers of the Flower Moon, and then What Was I Made For from Barbie, Billie Eilish, and Phineas' song. What that means is Peaches from Mario did not get in. Honestly, I thought that would have been a nice pick because Peaches, like I'm Just Ken, are actually songs that are in the movie and actually matter to the film and how the film works versus just a song that you play in the beginning or a song you play at the end credits. It's a pretty dumb category usually, but when you have a song like I'm Just Ken, I think you have to pick it to win because it actually matters to the film. Uh, and yeah, I think that's all the categories, right? Did I miss anything? I did not. No, that, that is all. So yeah, big takeaways. Uh, Gerwig out in Best Director. Big shock. Justin Triet and Jonathan Glazer in. Uh, Best Actress, you have Margot Robbie out. 
but somehow American Ferrer is still in for Best Supporting Actress. A bit of a, a tough thing to grab your head around there. Best Picture went chalk. There was just really no other like upstart pick to really break through here. Uh, Coleman Domingo does get in for Actor. Yeah, I think um, that's kind of the big stuff here. You know, Annette Benning being the one to knock out Robbie. Tough. Um, some cool surprises like El Conde getting nominated, Sidey the Snow getting a second nom, uh, Happy But Sterling K. Brown getting through, Charles Melton, bad beat from that guy. Um, yeah, so I'll be doing my best picture, pre- or sorry, my, oh, my full Oscar predictions for all the categories uh, in early March before the Oscars happen. And make sure you let me know what you think of these uh, nominations. What are your biggest snubs and surprises? Who are you rooting for? Of course, make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, because I will be back with those predictions. And yeah, for more movie reviews as well, subscribe. I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, a lot of things I'm excited to get into. Masters of the Air, the new Apple TV Plus World War II series about fighter pilots with Caleb Turner and Barry Keoghan and Austin Butler. This is kind of the spiritual uh, successor to the Band of Brothers and this Pacific. Can't wait. We also have the start of Expats on Amazon Prime Video from Lulu Wong starring Nicole Kidman. We have Ava DuVernay's new film Origin. Benny the Butcher's major label debut new album. And oh yeah, 2024 Grammy predictions. Let's go. Make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below. Get the best of 2024 Spotify playlist update every week. Let me know what's good, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.